Today we're talking with Justin Strasberger from Full Plates Full Potential, uh, who's the executive uh, director from Full Plates Full Potential, and is happens to be a Brunswick resident. So, Justin, thanks for coming today. Appreciate that. I'm really excited to hear about more about Full Plates Full Potential, and also just in general about food insecurity in Maine and how we can, you know, potentially work. To remediate that. I know in Brunswick we've been working hard to do that here and um, would love to hear from you other ideas and suggestions on how we can help our students not uh, have food insecurity. So why don't we start off with just uh, you know who you are and and uh, your story if you will and would love to hear whatever you want to share but would love to hear how you got full plates, full potential and then um, how long you've been there and, and so on. So I'll turn yeah. it over and we'll go from there. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. So um, I've been connected with Brunswick for, for quite some time. I am not from Maine originally, but grew up spending my summers here in northern Maine up in Jackman oh, wow. uh, with my family. And when it came time to choose a college, there's only really one place to look for me, and that was this wonderful state. And I was lucky enough to end up at Bowdoin here in Brunswick and spend four wonderful years here. But met my wife there. We moved away. We uh, we were in New York City for a very brief time, and then we were in the Boston area for a little over a decade. I went to Bowdoin thinking I was going to be a history teacher. Come from a family that has lots of educators and folks in education. That was uh, what I thought I would do. And then I got to senior year and was going to be doing the student teaching and realized I didn't have what it took to hack it in the classroom. To do it. To do that. A ton of respect for teachers who are asked to do so much. And at the time, I just figured, you know, I don't think I have the classroom management, the day-to-day lesson planning, and, and all of that. So I pivoted a little bit, learned about this wild world of nonprofits is yeah. another thing, which is just not always something that is uh, talked about. Hopefully now it's a little different than when I went to college, but mm. it was not just a big thing that folks were, were told about as part of career career readiness and uh, yeah. career opportunity. So I ended up in New York City working for Harlem Children's Zone, which is a wide-ranging Yeah, organization. great organization, yeah. And sort of fell into the field of college access and success there, which is what I did for the whole time I was in the Boston area. I worked for an organization there called Bottom Line mm-hmm. that helps young people uh, from low-income and disadvantaged backgrounds get to and through college and launch their careers. Yeah. But the pandemic hit, as it did for everybody. And uh, at the time, my wife and I, had we had two boys, and they were, at the time were one and three. Many young families, we were struggling. Uh, we didn't have any family nearby. And yeah. uh, when I lost my job with that organization because of the pandemic, that was sort of the, the trigger for us to say, you know, something needs to change here. We decided to move to, move to Maine. Uh, my parents had moved here to retire. They lived here in Brunswick across the river in Topsom. My mother-in-law lives up in Fayette. And so we had a lot of family here and we said, you know, let's get closer to family. They can, you know, get some help with these boys and, you know, enjoy the way life should be. And it's been really wonderful. We moved here a little over two years ago. I didn't have a job at the time. I was sort of embracing stay-at-home dad life while doing a little job searching. It was blessed to find this opportunity with full plates. I just celebrated my two year anniversary. Can we just go back to Bowdoin? Did yeah. you have, when you, did you do any student teaching or did you like in the Brunswick schools or anywhere else? I'd just be interested about I that. I didn't do any student teaching. It was at the point right before that, that I had realization that it wasn't <laughs> quite for me, but yeah. I did observation. I think for one semester I was observing in uh, Brunswick High. Uh, I think I spent time at Freeport at one point. So you got pretty there. far in the process and, yeah, and realized, I mean, I really, yeah. You know, I still graduated with a teaching minor just to do this student teaching certification and you know love the education department and my experience at Bowdoin it was more a personal thing. I'd love to hear like moving pivots full plates full potential 
kind of the background. I, I you know, obviously I spent time looking at it. In my prior district that I was in, we received, you know, grant funds from previous. So I'm familiar with it, but I bet our listeners probably would certainly benefit from hearing more about it and, um, you know, the roots, but also what they're doing now. Yeah, happy to. So um, Full Place, Full Potential, we're a nonprofit focused on ending childhood food insecurity in the state of Maine. We were founded uh, about seven, eight years ago, and it grew out of a legislative task force that was looking at student hunger in the state. And that task force was started in part by one of our co-founders, uh, Justin Alphonse. And basically the upshot of that report highlighted that as we think about addressing student hunger, there were some big things sitting out there for us that were going underutilized. And those were some of these federal child nutrition programs that exist. So things like school breakfast, school lunch, and then usually outside of the school setting, after school meals and summer meals. So these are four programs that are administered by the federal government nationally. Here in the state, they're administered by the Department of Education. And these have been around for decades. So they're sort of an established model. They often are administered in places where kids naturally are, like schools, community organizations. And so there's a lot of potential there, but we were looking at participation rates that were pretty dismal and people got to thinking about why is that? How could they be better? And through some digging and through, you know, this task force was shown was that it was a combination of things. I mean, the, the, as base, the folks involved in the system from the folks on the ground, the school nutrition directors and the schools, uh, to the folks at Department of Education that administer, to even up to USDA, they're all staffed and structured to administer the program as it is, not to dream of what it could be. You ask them all, it's like, you know, with really any issue, you ask the folks who are closest to it, they know what works and what doesn't, and yep. how it can be better, and that it can be better. But they don't have the resources to do anything about that. They don't have the expertise, they don't have the time, capacity. And it's really not what they should be doing. You know, we want our school nutrition teams focused on feeding our kids. Yeah. We don't want them yeah. to have to think about advocating for systems change and that sort of thing. And so what was, as Justin wound down his time in the legislature, what advocates were telling him was, this needs focused attention. This needs an organization outside of Department of Education, outside of government, who can sort of work at that 15,000 foot level to lift up the changes that need to happen, push them through, support the system to get to where it needs to be. Uh, so Justin partnered uh, with a guy named John Woods. Interestingly, okay. Justin's a Democrat, John's a Republican, mm -hmm. so there's some bipartisanship mm -hmm. right from the very beginning. And John had a history with food insecurity that dated back to being a sort of lead you know, fundraiser and advocate in the state for No Get Hungry, the national, uh, national model there. And John had done some great work with them, but he had gotten a little frustrated that, you know, it's a national organization, the funds get used all over, and he wanted to see more funds staying here in Maine. So he approached them and said, you know, respectfully, I'm going to go in a different direction and really focus my efforts on Maine. And they said, great, and they remain a strong partner of ours uh, mm. to this day. But so they started this organization, the focus was essentially, how do we unlock the potential of these child nutrition programs? And so our model has really been focused from day one on a couple founding principles. Mm -hmm. One, we don't want to exist. We want to work ourselves out of a job. And so nothing that we're doing is about sustaining the organization. It's not about the organization. It's about the issue. And so we really try and think of ourselves and position ourselves as how do we resource and strengthen and improve the system. And so part of that is about the resources needed today, but it's also about the structural and systems yeah. changes needed so the system can operate better. Hmm. And some of that is about resources, but some of it's also about the structures and culture 
which is a really important piece of it. Well, I'll say it this way. So when, when folks think about, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Food and shelter, that's sort of the core needs before yeah. things like education and self-actualization and yeah. that sort of thing, right? But within the school setting, oftentimes food gets sidelined and it yeah. gets inverted a little bit. And it's understandable. I think, you know, when folks think about what's the job of schools, they think to educate folks. Yeah. And that's true. Yeah. But I think it's easy to forget about the role that food plays in there because what, what we know to be true is that when kids are hungry, they can't learn. They're not learning. No, They're not learning. That's, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I heard from, interrupt you, but no that's one of the things that I heard about, you know, and people communicating with me, which is, I didn't know, you know, it, not that they didn't know, but the impact it has on student yeah. learning. Keep going. Thank yeah. you. So we, Full Place started out doing things like grant making and raising some money to provide grants to, to programs to help offer them some of the resources that they didn't have. Mm. I think one of the things that folks don't realize about things like school breakfast, school lunch is that they are not, you know, innately fully funded programs. Every meal served through those programs does get reimbursed by the federal government at, the, at a different rate depending on the category it's in, but it doesn't come close to, I think, covering the actual cost of administering it. So it leaves gaps in that in terms of what's being covered. And so there's some of that, but it was also a lot of listening to the folks on the ground to source mm. these ideas and, and pushing folks to dream a little bit bigger. Because I think that's a big challenge is when you've operated under a system that's sort of been built off of scarcity for decades, it's hard not to operate with that scarcity mindset. And it takes some pushing to dream about what what the program should look like, not what they look like today. With some of that pushing, folks had great ideas. And as suspected, these folks know what could be better. And so we started doing advocacy work and we started thinking about, okay, where is their legislative solutions to this? Now, ultimately these programs are administered by the USDA federally and it's hard to get things done better. So the advocacy aspect, that was one of my questions. So that originally, was that part of the plan or yeah. did that, it was? Okay, keep going. So it was always part of the plan. It I was. Think, because in order to have true systems change, some of that structures need to change. You but I, I think it's also important to realize that it's not just about structural change. That cultural piece is really big. Yeah. It starts yeah. with individuals. But okay. we started thinking about where can we have an impact. And we try to, I think, strike this balance of um, what I sometimes refer to as pragmatic progressivism, which sounds like <laughs> an oxymoron, but we want to be pushing. We want to be being progressive in that way of thinking about what's possible. We also want to do it within the lens of what can get done. Yeah. If you're spending all of your time just big blue sky dreaming, yeah. you know, that's, that's helpful in some ways, but it, you know, on a day-to-day -day nature, nothing's actually changing. And we feel it's important to be making incremental progress. And we don't think it's bad to have incremental progress. And so what, we've, wow. what, what we do is we, we work on some of the structural change, but then we back it up with support for mm -hmm. implementing that because you know, laws are only as good as what happens after that. Uh, we helped pass a law a couple years ago around the breakfast program. Yeah. We, there's lots of different ways that schools and districts serve breakfast uh, in the schools. Some uh, offer it as sort of a grab and go. Uh, some students have to show up before school starts to get it. Uh, and there's a lot of research showing us that the best model available is something called breakfast after the bill, where breakfast is served as part of the, the first period class or the homeroom class. And it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You're not putting the extra burden on students and families to get breakfast. It just comes to students where they are. And so we helped pass a law requiring uh, schools and districts with at least 50% free or reduced population to provide that model. They could provide other ones too, but they had to offer that model. Now, if we'd just done that, 
great, but we're leaving districts with sort of an unfunded mandate of you figure out how to make that happen. It would yeah. probably breed some resentment. People wouldn't be happy with us <laughs> and nothing much would change. And so we recognized that to do that, we had to make sure we were going to provide the incentives and the resources to do that. And so we at the same time set up a fund within Department of Education for those schools with 50% or higher need to apply for, to get money to support the adoption of this. And then because we want every school doing this, not just those with uh, 50% or higher, yeah. uh, we set up our own fund to do the same. And it's not a lot of money for these things. I mean, it's really? things like a cart to wheel the food yeah. from the cafeteria to the classrooms, a couple hundred dollars. But without that, it's that unfunded mandate. Yeah. Do you just pause there again? Yeah. Can you tell me, do you happen to know uh, when you say 50%, I bet our community, our listeners would be like, wow. Any idea roughly how many districts in the state of Maine are or how many districts that you know of that are more than 50% of their, and when we say free um, socioeconomically disadvantaged, or these are students that meet the criteria for, or families that meet the criteria for free and reduced lunch, is, or maybe there's a better yeah, way you talk. So, it's, it's, so two questions there. Yes. One was, you know, if you know, if, is 50%, what portion of Maine do you happen to know that? Yeah. So I, I, have, uh, I have mixed feelings about that, that okay. stat for a couple of reasons. So one... Uh, so just so folks understand it, yeah. um, the way the government does it is they sort of break meals into three categories. Mm -hmm. There's uh, free, reduced price, and uh, paid. Mm -hmm. Again, all of those get some level of reimbursement from the government, but as you can imagine, it's the highest for free, it's a little bit less for reduced, and it's yep. a lot less for the paid. Uh, and in order to understand where folks fall in that, Families have to fill out this meal benefit application yeah. at the beginning of the year. Any, very very level. onerous, just yep. for, just to say that. And um, and it's based on income level. And I think it's about 185% of the federal poverty guidelines is reduced price yeah. and a little less than that. And so right there you have a problem in that um, we know that that's not actually, does not match living expenses, does not match what the world we live in now. Absolutely. It's a lagging indicator for sure. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's, that's one issue with it. There's another around sort of just the onerousness of collecting that information um, that's been harder over the last couple of years that I get into. Um, uh, you know, a better, albeit imperfect indicator, yeah. is looking at uh, rates of food insecurity. Um, so food insecurity mm. is measured through surveying largely, um, census data, things like that. Yep. And it is, um, it's imperfect because it's a little bit um, subjective. But currently, the rate of food insecurity around children in Maine is about 16%. Now I will say oh, wow. that that is certainly gonna be low. We know yeah. in general this statistic gets underreported, but I will also say that data is from 2020 because these things lag. Uh, and that data includes the expanded child tax credit, which there's a ton of data showing it had a measurable drop in poverty rates and drop in hunger rates. And that program was sadly not continued by Congress. Mm -hmm. And so we will see those spiking back up along with inflation, all sorts okay. of other things. So typically Maine has had about around one in five, one in five. kids uh, experiencing food insecurity. It's the highest rate in New England. Of that, critically, there's around 40% of those kids come from families that don't qualify for free or reduced lunch. So Say I, that again. What was that? So of the, of the one, in five, one in five, yeah, yeah. Food security, about 40% of them wow. come from families that don't qualify for okay. reduced lunch or other federal benefits that are tied to that, yeah. like SNAP, which food stamps, yes. things like yep. that. Um, 
and that gets larger in, in more affluent counties. So we're in here in Cumberland County, yeah. the most affluent county in Maine. Yep. The most recent data we have for here is that the food insecurity rate around kids is about 13.5%. So okay. below the, the state average, which is great, but on the flip side, the estimates are about 53% of those kids are ineligible okay. for benefits. So mm. you sort of have these things. So the reality is, is that food insecurity exists in every town in the state. Yeah. It is a hidden thing often. Uh, chances are almost 100% that every single listener here either experiences food insecurity themselves or knows someone that does, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Um, there's issues of stigma and pride attached to it that make it under, an underreported statistic. Mm. Um, and so it's, and, and the other thing is it's not always tied to income. You know, while poverty is certainly the, the number one, you know, driver of food insecurity. Yeah. There are any number of other things that, that can get in the way of food security on a day-to-day basis. Uh, yeah. So it's not only just sort of the long-term piece of it, mm. which is one of the reasons why uh, uh, Healthy School Meals for All is such an important thing. And this is the, the, the major legislation we helped pass here uh, yeah. a couple years ago and went into effect this school year, which guarantees school breakfast and school lunch for every public school student in the, in the state. Um, which is huge. I just That's yeah. really important yeah. to... Just remind everyone about that. That legislation to me, I've been 25 years in the business of education and that was like a light switch for me, for educationally, because yeah. I remember, just to go back to your, your, some of your earlier comments, where we would provide, we thought we were doing the right thing, provide some breakfast before school. But how did kids get to school early to feed them? Yeah. And maybe if they caught an earlier bus, They'd be able to run in there and yeah. get something and then go to a classroom. I mean, right, hindsight's twenty twenty, but to see what's happened now, it's, you know, I use the light switch again. It's, it's, it's been significant. And I know our food service director and other, you know, administrators, everybody's, has, we're seeing the difference. We talked about those indicator and those rates of insecurity. I've heard that there's, so you talked about census data, and then I recently read there was some other, there's probably a lot of different Sure. States probably use different models. Maybe they do. I'm, I don't know if that's true, but census data was one. I was looking at some tax data that was a potential way to look at that of income tax, and there's some implications. I, I'm, I'm not asking the question, Justin, but you, what's what's the best? I, maybe I am asking. What is the best model? How could we, um, you know, get that? Because I know from a school district perspective, trying to get forms and things filled out. It's hard. If yeah. you're experiencing, whether it's homelessness or food insecurity or just day-to-day life uh, in Maine, um, it's hard to get you know, stuff back to school. Yeah, Guide that. there's no one perfect model. And we're hamstrung okay. a little bit in terms of the federal versus state of this all, right? So okay. even with School Meals for All, which is great, the state is the one. This is a state-level law, which means the state's covering yep. the difference between the federal reimbursement and the, and the state reimbursement. And for the state to build a federal government accurately, they need the accurate data right. on free, reduced, paid. It doesn't matter to the student, and that's really important that students yeah. can show up no matter what. And that's that was the intent of it. Um, but unfortunately, it's taken away one of the incentives for families to fill out this application. I understand it just as a parent myself. I get this this messaging that my kid can eat for free, and also this messaging that fill out this form yeah. about. You know, meal thing like why? What is that for? Yeah. Um, and so I think one of the one of the strategies that we're pursuing, 
Uh, there's a number of them. I mean, we're working at this at the federal level, but again, that's hard. Yep. Uh, number one is decoupling food, the, the, the meal piece from this, from, uh, from what this also, this gets used for a lot of things. The, mm. What started out as meal benefit form, this was a way for schools to collect data for this. Yeah. And because schools were getting it, they said smartly, honestly, at the time, well, let's use this data to use other things. And so that same data, this is why it's important that it's collected, yeah. gets used to dictate things like Title I funding. Uh, it also gets used for other nutrition programs in terms of determining uh, area eligibility to be able to offer yeah. things like summer meal programs and after-school programs. Um, and so one thing to do is to think about decoupling some of that. Them. That, makes, um, that makes a lot of sense. Because what it should not be is, it, it, you know, by having it all coupled, it has all of a sudden become the, the responsibility of the school nutrition directors to do this. Yeah. That this is pretty high stakes data all of a yeah. sudden. Yep. And it shouldn't be. Um, but a, a big one that we're talking about with some of our partners, including folks like Maine Equal Justice and others more broadly, and this is something that, that anti poverty folks have talked about for a long time, is uh, universal benefits application. Uh, and mm. the, the short version of that is folks in need should only have to fill out one form. I mean, they're all asking some version of the same information. You know, what's your, what's your family yeah. makeup, what's your yeah. income, that sort of thing. Sort of the FAFSA, yeah. right? You kind of go, exactly. I don't know, if, I mean, that's yeah. where my head went to, yeah. but you do that one form. Okay. Yeah. Um, but without all the, you know. Yes. The, yeah, <laughs> the all the other stuff. That, that but space. it's some universal application yes. that so, allows you to go to yes. different. And ideally is, you know, then you fill out the application and then folks come to you to say, here are the six programs that you're eligible for. Um, Wow. In the interim, things that we're working for are increasing, uh, expanding direct certification. So, for example, yep. uh, we're advocating in um, uh, for Maine to uh, work it out so that folks who are eligible for Maine care yep. can automatically be counted in, you know, the free or reduced oh, population. So, yeah, let's. So that's one of the things that you're looking at doing yeah. or attempting to get the. Yeah. I guess it would be the legislature. This or, is actually within the state offices. Um, oh, it is. And so that would make it. That yeah. alone seems to me. My the yeah. light bulb just went off for me yeah. again using the light switch analogy there. That seems like that would be a, that would make a ton of sense. It does. I mean, again, you know, one of the things we're, we were built to to confront is bureaucracy and yeah. dealing with the challenges of you have, uh, you know, school school meals sitting in Department of Education. You have main care sitting in you know Health and Human Services. Sure. Sure. And, they have different systems and they got to talk to each other. And yeah. so it's not without its administrative hurdles, um, but administrative hurdles are not a good reason not to make yeah. life easier for folks in need. Yep. Um, and hmm. so that's something that that's big. Okay. Um, but the, the big thing to do here is school meals for all is still a, a pipe dream at the federal mm -hmm. level, but the way for it to get done, I believe is the way that it's happening. You know, Maine and California were the first two states to do it. Yep. Uh, within days of each other, uh, since we passed that law about two years ago, because um, you know it didn't go into effect immediately. There's been other states that have passed some version of that legislation, and probably about a dozen more that have it in the okay. pipeline. And you get enough states doing that, and at some point, it's the tipping point. It's the tipping point yeah. where this should yeah. become a federal issue, yep. not a not a state issue. Uh, and so I'm optimistic that in my lifetime I'll see that happen. Yeah. Um, but we're in the meantime, I'm, I'm very proud that Maine was one of the first states in the country to yeah, do this. That's incredible. Um, because when you think about it, it makes a lot of logical sense. You know, I think, you know, sometimes folks can jump to, well, isn't this just paying for students who can afford it? And, you know, one, I shared that statistic of, you know, these are outdated 
indicators. Yeah. But even setting that aside, just thinking from a basic equity perspective, I mean, you know, we don't ask who can afford to pay for a bus when we provide busing. Uh, we don't ask who can afford to pay for yeah. a laptop or yeah. or books yeah. or oh, other I'm aspects so glad of the educational you've... experience. We provide it to all students. So glad you just said, yeah, particularly those two. Absolutely. The bus one is one, right? The bus or nowadays here and in Brunswick for us, technology, it's, it yeah. goes, it's a given. Yeah. You're receiving it. It's a tool you need. It's like, why not use it the same way? That's that's. Yeah. And yet, with meals, we've chosen the means test. Yes. When we know that without priming, priming kids with, it impacts. with nutrition, none of that other stuff makes a difference. And, and that was, thankfully, you know, as hard as it is to get things through in Washington, uh, Health School Notice for All passed the Maine Senate unanimously. Yeah. And overwhelming support in the Maine House because folks understood that point. That, you know, uh, on the you know, Republican side, more fiscally conservative, they were saying, listen, we spend all this money on education. It's wasted money in some regards if we're not giving kids the nutrition they need to take advantage of it. Uh, so that's you know one argument. There's lots of other great arguments in favor of it, but I think in general, it's about developing this culture yeah. that recognizes that food is an integral part and nutrition more specifically. It's not just about any calories, it's about healthy yeah. calories, nutrition calories, is integral to kids learning and success. And there's countless studies that show that. And, you know, you mentioned um, what you've seen since it's passed and, and it's been in effect. And we're hearing similar that we're hearing reductions in visits to the principal's office for behavioral mm. issues. We're hearing significant reductions in visits to school nurses. Yeah. Um, less needing to hand out snacks. I mean, just things yeah, that I, make some logical sense. That, you, I mean, hopefully some teachers, well, parents will hear this and teachers or listeners. But that's one of the things that you always see teachers, right, passing out those snacks and whatnot. And that has decreased. We've had the conversations. They're still there, but we are able to supplement them for a lot of folks. We're able to do that. Sounds as, I mean, you've outlined a lot of what the advocacy and the legislative advocacy that Full Plates, Full Potential, and you as an executive director and your team are working on. I'd love to hear what else you folks do because I know you do a lot of other stuff or your organization does a lot of different things yeah. and offers a lot of opportunities to school districts. So I'd love to hear about that as well. Yeah. So uh, again, sort of as I shared with that breakfast example, mm. we're always thinking about how do we not just focus so much on the future that we're ignoring what the needs are today. Uh, and so uh, the, the things we try really hard to do is is support the adoption of best practices. And not every best practice needs a legislative solution. Um, yep. It's great when they don't need that quite yeah. frankly, right? Yeah. It can save a lot of time. And so we have a couple different things we're able to offer to districts, as well as you know, community programs that operate these programs, because uh, some of the after-school programs and the summer was one of my questions. are operated by after-school programs. So let me actually, before you yeah. say about those best practices, I was wondering about that. So like, do you work with, like you just said, like a child care or daycare or pre-k those kind of programs as well or so not as much so not we, as we much stay pretty focused on the k through 12 you do okay that's right what now. i was wondering that's, that's primarily because of that's who's served by these programs by there, those there okay are some uh daycares and um uh, preschools that operate what's called the cacfp program okay um which is a program that we work on but we focus on that program more on the uh, on the after school meals component uh that's not to say there isn't a lot of need in other places, but... Um, you, you've got your lane and you there. kind of stay there. Um, what okay. I will say is, you know, our big goal is ending childhood food security, and we know that that's going to take more than what we're doing on our own, and so we do devote part of our time, to, you know, speaking to some of the other things we do, mm. 
to supporting folks working on other aspects of, of food yep. security and childhood food security, um, whether that's focused on other pieces of the out-of-school time or those younger populations. And we just try to be a value-add, whether there's lessons we can share from yeah. you know our advocacy work, other expertise or resources. We try to be sort of pretty open source about things, the approach that you know what's good for others is going to be good for us, yeah. um, you know, because it's, it, it really does take everybody to, to yeah. solve this. So um, we operate a number of grant programs right now. Those grant programs are largely focused on encouraging schools to start programs. They don't have programs that's particularly around things like uh, the after school program uh, or summer programs yep. um, to expand those programs or operate more sites. Um, when it comes to things like school breakfast, again, we're really focused on breakfast after the bell. That continues that, you know, the yep. pandemic derailed that a little bit, but we're, we're back trying to, to get more folks mm-hmm. to do that. And it's not just about grant funds. I mean, that's important. We know that money is critical for folks, but we also have technical assistance we can provide. We have mm. two retired school nutrition directors uh, who are, are consult with us and we're able to offer up free of charge to, to districts looking to implement some of these things. These folks have been in these folks' shoes. They know what it takes. They know yeah. all the regulations, the USDA guidelines, the headaches of the bureaucracy of it all. And they're able to offer you know pathways to get through it yeah. uh, to smooth the adoption of these things. You know, In terms of the carrot and the stick, we are all about the carrot. Yeah. So we <laughs> want to make this as easy as possible. Yep. For folks to do so we offer up the technical assistance the funds you know anything else they really need uh to do this and we work really closely on the ground level with the programs but also at the doe level trying to provide them with support too to implement this so it's never yeah. antagonistic you know again okay. everybody involved in this system knows it can be better wants it to be better we try to grease that a little bit add the okay. resources needed to allow that to happen so the other thing that we do, you know, just in terms of grant making, just, to, you know, some quick steps. So in our time, we've given out over, uh, you know, about over $3 million in grants wow. to uh, schools, community organizations, every county in Maine. And, you know, during the pandemic, you know, we pivoted a little bit because, again, the, one of the things I love about us is we can be really responsive. Mm. You know, we are not a governmental agency. We don't have a lot of strings attached to things. We have, you know, a emerging point of view that largely comes from the folks on the ground. And what they, during the pandemic, what they said they needed changed. Yeah. And they needed some basic stuff. You know, schools shut down. All of a sudden, folks had to get creative on how to get food. To yeah. And I think for a lot of folks, it was recognitions of, oh, my goodness, look at all the things we expect our schools to do besides just educate. And so just during the pandemic, you know, peak of the pandemic, uh, over about a, a little over a year, we granted out about $1.4 million to schools. And that was pretty much no strings attached dollars yeah. to you use it how you need to use it in the sort of the theory of when the house is on fire, you're not quibbling yeah. over, you know, where the waters go. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, sincerely, thank you. Because that was, that seems like that was a shift. Yeah. Uh, and that, think... that seems like it was for us. I mean, what I mean by a shift is that, well, I think what you just said, which is people realize that we're doing a lot more than just ABCs and one, two, three, yeah. and et cetera. We're doing everything from feeding students and, you know, to social, emotional welfare and on and on yeah. and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing, though, is that um, these programs were not, just important, right, these programs are not sort of flushed with cash to begin with, right? That's and so, so when true. you ask them to all of a sudden do new things, yeah, there's new costs that are associated with that. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, we were able to leverage our network. We were got a lot of new donors coming into the door and who thankfully trusted us to mm. identify where the need was and, and get the money right back out the door. 
And so since students have been back in person, we've, we've tried to slowly shift a little bit more back to sort of the way of let's get back to trying to get more of these best practices adopted and, adopted. and, and some of that kind yeah. of thing, but always trying to balance what are the needs of folks right now. And, and you know, the last thing we want to do is be seen as a draw on people's time, a drain on it, a necessary evil. That's not what we want to be. We want to be additive. We want to be, you know, resourcing folks. We want folks to feel like it's seamless. You know, the other thing I'll say is like, you know, yeah. school meals for all, huge, undoubtedly. Um, but I think it's, it can be easy to think, great, that's there. And these programs are not perfect. And it's just unfortunately not, not the case. Um, and so there's a couple things that we're focused on right now. So number one, the health yeah. school meals for all only deals with school breakfast and school lunch. So it doesn't touch after school meals, doesn't touch right. summer meals. Um, we're, we're absolutely working on this issue of the benefit form, but we're also looking at, you know, it's great that meals are free. That's a starting point, but all calories are not created equal. We <laughs> want kids to have healthy meals, but they're kids. You got to balance healthy with what will they eat. And so we're doing a lot of work thinking about the composition of meals. We've done a lot of work to, to build out incentives around incorporating local foods in schools. Flew a little bit under the radar because it was the same year we passed School Meals for All. But the same year we passed a major expansion of what's now called the Local Foods Fund that provides districts with uh, a reimbursement of uh, $1 for every $3 spent on local ingredients up to uh, about $5,000 per, per district uh, in the hopes that, that districts incorporate more local foods. It's a win for everybody. It's a win for the many producers in our state. It's a win for our students who get healthier, less processed Absolutely. ingredients. It's a win for the environment. You're shortening supply chain. Great. So that's an area we're continuing to look at. But another issue that we're focused on in this upcoming legislative session uh, is ensuring students have enough time to eat. You know, again, thinking about how we often approach schools, thinking about the time in the classroom first. But what can sometimes get shortchanged there is the lunch period or the meals, and it becomes an afterthought of where can we squeeze it into the day. So you end up with things like yeah. lunch periods at 10 in the morning, you end up with 20 minutes, and you know we've seen some data that shows that the last kid in line getting a meal might only have two to three minutes to actually eat that meal. And that's just not enough time Yeah, no, <laughs> um, to right. actually eat a meal that leads that's... to food waste, it certainly leads to, to kids maybe not getting the meals that they need, the calories that they need. And on top of that, you know, on the softer side, those times are critical for kids. The perspective, I, the time yeah. to decompress, the time to engage with friends. There's learning that happens there. It's, every it's day, not every minute, learning. absolutely. And I think okay. you know, one of the critical pieces here is this is not always something that administrators or school nutrition directors even identify as a problem. It's something that comes directly from the students. If you yeah. talk to students, yeah. it is the, the two issues that they bring up over and over again when it comes to school meals is one, I don't have enough time to eat them. Yeah. And two, I don't always like what's on the plate. The first one we're trying to address, I totally understand it's not without its challenges. It's a, it, you know, back to like administrative headaches. Yeah. It absolutely is. And I don't think that's a good enough reason not to try to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. Um, and the other one I think can be solved too. And I can think it can be solved by engaging students in the process. But there are schools doing creative things like taste tests and things yep. like that and finding ways to encourage folks to do stuff. We're working on uh, thinking about how can we ensure schools even have the right equipment to do things. Mm. This is a major challenge. One of the other things we're advocating this year is to bring back an equipment fund to the Department of Education. Okay. Because the number of schools working with outdated or missing equipment would blow people's minds. Wow. We're probably talking about millions of dollars worth of need here. We're not going to mm. get that in the budget. Yeah. Um, but we want to have a starting point. And I want to be clear here. The reality, you know, I want to be uh, drive this home for our listeners. The reality is, school food is way better than you likely think it is. 
Uh, it's changed. That's it the has truth. Changed, it's yes. Improved, uh, and it's dealing with uh, you know USDA restrictions and guidelines on what has to be on the plate, and there's a lot that's out of the control of the school nutrition team. Yeah. But there are things that are in control, and we're working to improve the equipment, improve culture, skills training, best practices, connections between yeah. producers. We produce so much food in the state, and a lot of it leaves the state. Yep. And so how can we keep more of that here and getting it under our kids' plates? There's great work happening, like just down the road at uh, Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. They mm. have this wonderful fishermen yep. feeding Mainers program that's getting free fish to yep. school. That's one. That was awesome you say that because I went to HBS, Harry Peach Stowe School. I was at a couple months ago, and they had just received a, uh, a, a load from Maine Fishermen's Organization, but they were making a dish there, like literally. And I, it surprised me. I'm like, whoa, yeah. wow, look at that. And they were breading it and, and doing different things yeah. with it, and they were going to do some taste tests and whatnot. Anything that I haven't asked that you'd like to add? You know, I think the one thing I would just encourage folks to think about when they you know, are thinking at the local level yeah, and they're looking at things like uh, school department budgets and school boards and all of that, right? Remember the importance of food mm. and food service and prioritize it. Because, again, uh, no one is doing anything extravagant on that. I can promise you that. Yep. Uh, almost all these folks are operating with that kind of scarcity mindset. No one's asking for you know stainless steel biking ranges. It's all yeah. they're asking for the bare minimum to get by, and even then, they're not always getting it. Yep. And I think we need to, you know, if we want our kids, if you want your kids to have, you know, access to healthy great school meals it's possible none of the things that we're dealing with are sort of pie in the sky there's no way to overcome these challenges the thing that it gets me out of bed every day it gets me excited to do this work every single one of these things can be done yeah it takes political will it takes resources including money but not exorbitant things you know it takes a little bit of extra it takes being willing first and foremost to prioritize it yeah and to you know reframe the way we think about education and the way we think about child development to remember the importance of food and not just any calories but quality calories I, I, you started off talking today earlier about the scarcity mindset yeah and that's a um i'm gonna uh, we're in we've just begun our budget process yeah. here in brunswick and that that can be paralyzing when you live under that yeah. that scarcity mindset so uh, Justin, I really, I want to thank you. Your enthusiasm is contagious. It really is. I want to thank everyone at Full Plates, Full Potential. I really, um, I've seen the results of your, you know, the, I've been, you know, my districts have been, uh, you know, benefit from that. So thank you so much. And lastly, again, just thank you for trying to work so hard, diligently to reduce childhood uh, food insecurity because um, we need people like you. And thank goodness we have you in Brunswick. Hey, thank you for listening to The Brunswick Buzz. The Brunswick Buzz is available wherever you find your podcast.